What would you think of a a football game where the players, you know, spent an hour in huddle and only three minutes actually playing? It would not be a very inspiring game. Uh, would you pay twenty dollars to watch a whole series of huddles? <laughs> not likely. Uh, twenty thousand fans are watching this game because they want to see the power of these people's skill and of their following the uh, instruction of their coaches and of the practice sessions that they have. They want to see them proving their stuff on the field out there. Now, they can appreciate a 30-second huddle because they recognize that's an important part of the game. But what is the point of huddling if the team is not out there snapping the ball and taking that ball down to try to make some scores? You gather in huddles so that you know how to scatter. And the same was true of the church of Jerusalem. Uh, Christ had gathered the disciples in Jerusalem to a huddle. In chapter 1, verse 8, he said, You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Earlier he had said this, Wait in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. Luke 24 Verse 49, he didn't want them going off and uh, playing their game until they had received the instruction or received the power uh, that they needed to be able to do so. But that was not the end of the game. And unfortunately, there were some in the church who were treating it as if that really was uh, the full uh, game. God had commanded them to wait and uh, uh, he told them to wait until they were endued from on high. That was five years before. This is now 35 A.D., and yet they're content to remain in Jerusalem and their practice season. But Acts 1.8 has two sides to its equation, to its game plan. The practice and the huddles are described in the first part of that verse. And then the second part uh, descri describes scattering to play where Christ says, You shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And I find it interesting that in chapter 8, he uses exactly the same language when describing where they were going to, that God was scattering them so that they would go to from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria. And in verse 4, it says everywhere. That's to the end of the earth. <coughs> and what Luke was saying is that God was forcing them to go to the places that earlier he had commanded them to go to. I believe that the real effectiveness of the church is uh, actually seen and measured uh, by what its members do out in the marketplace of the world. Now, that's not to say that huddles are not important. They're very important. Anybody who knows uh, football knows the practice sessions and the huddles are a uh, very important part. But uh, many times I think Christians get all of their highs from huddling and worship and they never get the ball of God's Word out there into the field of the world. When they get out on the field, they drop the ball completely. In fact, sometimes they're embarrassed to be carrying the ball of the Word. Their excuse is, well, that's for the pastor to engage in. Preachers, pastors, uh, they are the ones who deal with the Word. But I want you to notice in verse 4, it says, Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the Word. Now, who were scattered? Verse 1 tells us, They were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Uh, it wasn't the officers who were out there playing ball on the field. It was the people who were being scattered. It was the members of the church. Uh, the preachers were simply the coaches who were equipping the saints for the work of the ministry. 
And so it was the Christians in the pew who were expected to play ball. And so both aspects are important. It's important to get discipled in the church and to learn how to worship and to find your strength and union and communion with Christ. In fact, if you're not developing your day-by-day strength from Christ, you're not going to get your first down in this uh, spiritual football game, as it were. Uh, But at the same time, those who focus all of their time on worship, on prayer, on teaching, on personal meditation, and they never get out there and never influence the world are really not... Uh, uh, what they are demonstrating is that their huddles are pointless. And when that happens, as happened to the church in Jerusalem, what God many times does is He puts pressures upon the church and sometimes brings pain into the church's life to get them to go out and to do the things that they are supposed to do. And I believe that's what God has been doing uh, to the church in America. He has been adding pressure. And he's been adding pain by very mild forms of persecution, but instead of getting out, the church has further retreated into its ghettos. Uh, pietism is on the rise. It is not on the wane. Uh, do we need frequent worship and frequent prayer? Absolutely. Yes, we do. I'm a strong, strong uh, believer in worship and prayer, but prayer is an offense to God if we are not obeying. Prayer is an offense to God if we're not getting out there and doing the very things that our prayers are calling us to do. Um, Think of yourselves as spiritual salt and pepper shakers. You gather in huddles so that you can fill up with salt. And uh, then what you need to be doing is you need to be going out and liberally sprinkling that salt uh, into your home life and into entertainment and uh, work and everywhere you are out there in the world. (coughs) Have you ever been in restaurants where the salt and pepper shakers are all clogged up. doesn't matter how much you shake it, you can't get anything out. And what's happened there is that the steam from the food has moistened the, uh, the pepper and the, the salt, so it's kind of sticking together and clogging up. And the only thing that we are sprinkling our salt on is the lovely, fragrant uh, steam of the church, and we're never sprinkling it on the dry world, we eventually are going to get clogged up as well. And uh, we're not going to be very effective. And so point number one shows that we need God's power, but each of the subpoints shows how God intended the power to immediately result in action on the field. And I'm not going to go through those subpoints. I want us to concentrate on verses one through eight, where we see the scattering of the church was for the purpose of winning ground. Verse one. <clears throat> now Saul was consenting to his death. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. And I think this is such a wonderful, fabulous way of introducing uh, to us the Apostle Paul. Now, he's not Paul yet. He's Saul at this point. He later on changes his name uh, to Paul. But Saul was the greatest persecutor of the church. He was not just content to persecute the saints in Jerusalem. He was going everywhere to persecute them. He was not just content to uh, keep Christians out of the public arena. Uh, No, he was even going into the homes and dragging off people, violating their uh, rights of of privacy there. Uh, He was willing to offend pagan and Christian alike in order to accomplish his goals. And his goals were to completely do away with, to exterminate Uh, the church. Now, I want us to think about that because if God could stop the worst persecutor of the church in the New Testament, which he did in chapter 9, 
then it implies to me two things. First of all, there is no human heart that is too tough for God's grace to conquer. And secondly, it implies that God willed this persecution to come into the life of the church. I think that is a logical necessity. It's a logical deduction uh, that flows uh, from that. He could stop that persecution any time. If he could stop Paul, he could stop any of the other persecutors of the church, but he chose not to. He allowed that persecution to come until the church was exactly where he wanted the church to be. Now, to me, this shows that God is sovereign. Uh, He controls even the persecutors of the church of Jesus Christ. And it's such an encouragement to me that uh, God is uh, not out of control. Some people wish that the Chinese Christians could have the pluralism that we have in America. Uh, But the Chinese do not see American pluralism as being any less dangerous than what they are going through. You may remember in Acts chapter 5 how Paul, uh, Luke, excuse me, had introduced us to a totally different kind of an unbeliever. It was Gamaliel who was Paul's mentor, uh, who was Paul's teacher. And uh, Gamaliel in that chapter doesn't want conflict. Uh, He's a pluralist. He just wants to get along with people. He wants to allow various views to be tolerated. And he's too kind-hearted to persecute. It seems that he doesn't understand why these people feel like they have to persecute the church uh, so severely. So he's willing to compromise uh, if the church is willing to compromise. And I think his strategy is quite an effective strategy Uh, could be quite as effective as the persecution that Saul engages uh, could be. But one of the differences between Gamaliel and Saul is that Gamaliel really did not understand the issues that were at stake. Gamaliel did not realize that one or the other of these positions was going to win and the other to lose. Saul understood it. And that's one of the reasons why Saul was utterly unwilling to make any compromises. One writer describes it this way. Saul was always a sharp thinker and understood the issues clearly, both before his conversion and then afterwards, we see that he rejected the idea of compromise. He knew that everyone's way of thinking was a complete system and to break it at one point would be to break the whole system. Saul realized that there could be no peace between the old order and this new teaching. This was a struggle unto death. These two different worldviews could not tolerate one another. Jesus claimed absolute obedience to his every word and complete commitment to his cause. Thus, if you are not totally for him, then you are against him. Luke 11:23. Saul's teacher Gamaliel had failed to realize the seriousness of Christ's claims and thus was prepared to compromise with the new faith. Acts 5:34 through 39, stating that it might just be true. Rebellion against God touches every area of life because His Word touches every area of life. And thus, there can be no uniting between those who obey Christ and those who reject Him. And the writer goes on to show how the soft answer of Gamaliel was just as dangerous as the harsh answer of Saul and that the pluralism of America is every bit as dangerous as the persecution that Christians undergo in China. And then he says, Saul clearly understood that if he didn't destroy Christianity then his system of belief would be destroyed. Christ's goal is nothing less than total conquest of all hearts and minds. Unbelieving systems use violence in order to bring about total conformity, whereas Christ, through the power of the Spirit, changes people's hearts, and in this way their minds and actions are brought into willing submission. And I think that is such a 
uh, a great insight as to why it is that the communists in China have to continue persecuting the church. They recognize that Christianity is growing, it's vibrant, and that it is utterly incompatible with the core of communism. They recognize they can't compete in the free market of ideas. There's only one option, two options, I guess. They could give in or they uh, begin to use force uh, against the, the church. And uh, so the book of Acts is really a marvelous, all the way through, it's a marvelous commentary on what's driving some of the social issues that you see in various countries. So there was a reason for the persecution. Paul could see the writing on the wall and the more ground that Judaism lost, the more violent they became in their reactions. And in the same way, if you look at the violence that's coming against the church in other countries, almost always it is because the church is making incredible strides against humanism or against communism or against uh, Hinduism or some other uh, ism that is out there. Uh, they are, are recognizing that uh, it, it is coming at their own expense. Now, you're always going to find some people like Gamaliel who don't understand the issues, uh, who appear to be friends, uh, but uh, really are not being consistent. The violence against us is a sign that we're winning the battle and uh, that uh, there's been an uncompromising biblical message that's going forth. One author wrote this. Noah's message from the steps going up to the ark was not something good is going to happen to you. Amos was not confronted by the high priest of Israel for proclaiming confession is possession. Jeremiah was not put into the pit for preaching. I'm okay. You're okay. Daniel was not put into the lion's den for telling people possibility thinking will move mountains. John the Baptist was not forced to preach in the wilderness and eventually be beheaded because he preached, Smile, God loves you. The two prophets of the tribulation will not be killed for preaching, God is in His heaven and all is right with the world. Instead, what was the message of all these men of God? Simply one word, repent, repent. They were making it clear all was not well with the world and if people wanted to experience the joy that verse 8 talks about, they had to repent they had to receive the salvation that comes from Jesus Christ. And so when you have the boldness of uh, Stephen's preaching that we looked at before, there will eventually be backlash. But I do want you to notice one other thing about verse 1. Luke makes no derogatory comments about the people who fled. None whatsoever. In fact, it appears as if the apostles have encouraged these people to be scattered, to, to flee to other areas, perhaps because of the commandment given in Matthew 10, verse 23. But here, everybody leaves except for the apostles. Not everybody is uh, called to stay and fight. Now, everybody's called to play ball, but there are some people who are supposed to run with that ball as fast as they can away from the persecution, right? <laughs> away from the opposition and to be trying to make some more uh, touchdowns. So do not think poorly of people in China or in other countries when they flee from city to city. It's something Jesus even talked about in Matthew 10, verse 23. There are two quite different and yet both appropriate responses to persecution. Some stayed, they continued to resist, others fled. Look at verse 2. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. Now, one of the things I found interesting about this was that the lamentation was illegal. Uh, in the Talmud, they record the laws of that day, um, and the laws that they had established were that no one could mourn over the death of a criminal. 
And so, this is another example in the book of Acts of civil disobedience. Um, and it was actually quite public because it says they made great lamentation uh, over them. What they were doing by that lamentation is they were saying that they disagreed with the Sanhedrin's decision and they were protesting the Sanhedrin's decision. Now, some Christians get real nervous about this, but it's okay to disagree uh, with the civil government and it's okay even to protest against what the civil government has done. Certainly, John the Baptist uh, did that on a number of occasions. Submission to government, whether it's family government, church government, civil government, is not blind submission. It's submission in the Lord, in the Lord. Now, the second thing I want you to see in verse 2 is that the Sanhedrin's actions are backfiring. Praise God. And we see this so often. They're backfiring. Instead of cowing the people into silence, it's raising up more and more discontent. And we see this in China. We see this in Indonesia and in other places. And so verses 1 to 2 are an overview of what is happening. And in verse 3, he backs up and he amplifies on this opposition, this persecution. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. The New American Commentary says, The Greek word is lumino, a strong expression that is used in the Septuagint for wild beasts such as lions, bears, and leopards tearing at raw flesh. And so what Luke is doing is he's deliberately using this word that immediately conveys this imagery into the minds of the readers. He's using this word to show that this, uh, this nation, this religious nation, has become a bestial nation. You see, it's not just pagan nations that are described as being beasts in the Scripture. Uh, certainly, the book of Revelation describes Rome as being a beast. But let me read you what Romans, uh, Revelation 13, uh, how it describes Israel. It describes another beast. And he had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon. Israel looked good. It looked like a lamb, but it spoke like a ravening dragon. And in the same way, even Christian countries, so-called Christian countries down through history have been tempted to act in very bestial ways against citizens, uh, persecuting them, tearing at them, violating the privacy rights of individuals, tearing families apart. And the point is that you can never rest on your laurels in the nation, which is what Americans, uh, Christians, for uh, uh, more than one generation have done. Because unless God's grace is restraining leaders, giving them wisdom, giving them character, they're going to be tempted uh, to uh, act in a bestial way, uh, even though they may have a reputation of being a lamb. And America's had a reputation of being a lamb, but it has acted many times like a ravening dragon. Uh, I think it's a very apt description. <clears throat> we say that we're for peace and for defense, and yet we're involved in almost every conflict and issue out there that has no bearing uh, upon us. Our founding fathers recognize there's this constant tendency of a nation to be slipping downwards. And it said, they said, several of them said, our constitution is only fit for a godly citizenry. It will not restrain those who are not godly. And so we see in our own nation today, it's just an absolutely astounding thing how many unconstitutional things are done. Most of the policies, by far the majority of policies that come out of the federal government are throwing off the restraints of the Constitution, not to say that they're throwing off the restraints of the law of God as well. <clears throat> and any country that has thrown off the restraints of God's law, what Psalm 2 calls the cords of Christ and the bonds of Christ 
is by definition, by God's definition, a bestial country. Now let's move on to verse 4. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the Word. The first result that we see from Satan's attempt to, to stamp out this fire is that the stamping caused the sparks to be going in all directions. What happens then? You start all kinds of fires, don't you? And so there were Reformation fires that were beginning to start all over the, uh, the, Roman, <clears throat> all over the Roman Empire. And uh, that's an encouraging thing that we can see even with persecution today that it, it just spreads the fire, spreads the sparks. Now, I've already mentioned the second thing to notice, that every member except for the apostles were witnessing, or to use the football metaphor, it's not primarily the coaches who play on the field. The football players did. Now, if you have bought into <clears throat> the notion that uh, pastors and officers, you know, that they're, they're paid to do the work of the ministry, I want you to turn with me right now to Roman, uh, Ephesians chapter 4. <clears throat> And uh, verses 11 through 12, because this passage makes it very clear. Every member is a minister and the officers are the coaches. Okay, the coaches are paid to be coaches. Ephesians 4, 11 through 12. And he gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Now, the grammar of the Greek is quite clear. That And I think of the English here as well. It's quite clear that the officers are the equippers and the saints are the ministers. And so here's the question I would like to ask you. Are you ministering God's Word in the marketplace of ideas out there in the world? Are you playing football or are you only a spectator? Because God has called every believer to be out there playing on the field. The third thing I want you to notice is that little word, therefore, at the beginning of verse 4. What he's saying is there was persecution, therefore, they did what God had already commanded them to do. It's exactly what it is saying there. Why did they have to wait for the persecution to do that? Acts 1.8, five years before, Jesus had told them to wait in Jerusalem until they were endued with power from on high. Now, they already had the power. They already had the power to scatter. And to me, this shows that the first century saints are really not that much different than we are. <clears throat> you know, how many times do I preach God's word to you, whether it's maybe on family issues and what you, your responsibilities as fathers and mothers and children are, and it goes in one ear and out the other, and it's not being applied until the pain in the family becomes so great that you come to me for counseling and say, I can't figure out why everything's so bad. And Glenn and I, in counseling you, just remind you, this is what we've been talking about for a long time. So we insist that you follow the biblical steps for dealing with that. And when you do, voila, everything gets better. But why do we have to wait till it's painful before we listen to God's Word? Well, I think one of the reasons is that Jesus says that um, we tend to be very dull of hearing, that our, that our uh, flesh tends to drag us uh, down. We either don't have hearing ears or we're not using our hearing ears. You see, when Jesus said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear, he's implying two things. First of all, he's implying not everybody has hearing ears. But him who has ears to hear implies some don't. 
But then the second thing that is implied is even if you are a believer, you've been granted spiritual ears to hear, you may not necessarily be using it. That's why he commands those who have those ears to begin using those ears. I've many times in my life become what Hebrews 5 talks about as dull of hearing. Dull of hearing. Uh, we don't hear the Word of God speaking through the Scriptures to us. All we hear is uh, Glenn Durham, Phil Kaiser, Rodney, you know, just rattling on about all kinds of interesting things about the Bible, you know, and we tag those into our head, but we're not taking notes to change our lives. We're not saying, Lord, where do you want me to change? Please speak to me from your Word, and I'm going to write these things down. I'm going to put an action plan uh, into, into existence. No, what usually happens is we just you know, enjoy the preaching and say, that's interesting stuff that I can store up there. And it's not until things get just intolerable and painful that we finally come and say, help, <laughs> I need some help. It's much, much easier to do so earlier. The fourth thing that I see in this verse is that they went everywhere. Once they began to get the hang of scattering on the football field, they get it into their bones and they keep running and running uh, that ball. Uh, they couldn't be stopped. By the time you get to chapter 11... And verse 19, it says this, Now those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch preaching. By the time you get to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, these scattered Christians had traveled as far as Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And so what Saul intended for good, God uh, for evil, God intended for good. And this is what's happened in country after country. Incredible persecution arose against the church in Ethiopia. And they intended it for evil to stamp out the church, but God intended it for good. And He caused that church to grow like wildfire. And you see the same thing uh, happening in many other countries like North Korea and China and North Vietnam and Indonesia and Afghanistan. The fifth thing to notice about verse 4 is the centrality of the Word of God in the lives of these believers. You see, the Bible was not just intended for pastors. <clears throat> it was not just intended to be in the church. Uh, God intends for every believer to be a Bible thumper and to be proud about the fact that you're a Bible thumper. Uh, and since the Bible speaks to every area of life, that means that there should be no area of life that we're not carrying the football of God's Word into. Okay, don't be ashamed of the scripture. Carry that ball. Now, let's move on to verse five. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. Now, this was the capital and it shows uh, one of the strategies of the early church. It was the strategy that Paul used. Paul, if you study his methods of church planting, he would move to a, a large city, especially many times the capitals, but a large city where there was a lot of travel back and forth between them, a lot of trade that was going on. He would establish a church there and then he would leave and expect that church to be planting churches into all of the surrounding areas. This is the method that the PCA uh, uh, Mission to the World uses. Uh, and it's been criticized many times for not going off into the tribes and the countries and different areas like that and concentrating on the big cities. They do have some missions in the other areas, but this is simply following the, the strategy that was set up in the New Testament. Those churches that are planted by local, uh, that are already established, are going to be much effective as locals planting churches in, in the other areas. Notice, secondly, that he preached Christ to them. 
Christ is the heart of our message because Christ is the heart of the Bible. Now, some people have misinterpreted this and they have thought that this means that we should only preach the just bare bones of the, of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I would say, no, that, that's a real misunderstanding of <clears throat> this phrase. The whole Bible is the word of Christ. And if we are failing, as Paul did, to preach the whole counsel of God, we're failing to preach the whole counsel of Christ. We're failing to preach his word. And so if you just look at at Christ as Savior and Christ as Lord, I think it will help you to understand what preaching Christ means. What does it mean that Christ is our Savior? It does not just mean that He saves us from hell. I mean, that's, that's a wonderful, glorious truth. But what does Matthew 1 say? You shall call His name Jesus, for He shall save His people from their sins. So we're being saved from our sins. First John tells us that sin, all sin, is lawlessness. And so that means any point of law in the Old or the New Testaments is a point that introduces us to the gospel, that introduces us to Christ as the solution. So if you're preaching Christ as Savior, you're going to preach the whole counsel of God. What about Christ as Lord? Christ claims lordship over every area of life. He's been given all authority in heaven and on earth, which means that preaching Christ means preaching, bringing all things into submission to the Lord Jesus Christ. So do not think of preaching Christ as preaching simply the four spiritual laws. That's a, that's a misunderstanding. The book of Acts is a kingdom document. And Philip was confronting people with Christ's universal uh, kingship. And in your outlines there, I've included some scriptures which show how the Bible uses this term, preaching Christ. Look, for example, at verse 12. This is a commentary on the earlier statement that Philip was preaching Christ. Verse 12 says, But when they believed Philip, as he preached the things, get this, concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. So preaching Christ means preaching his kingdom. And uh, you find this all the way through the book. In fact, if you look at the very last verse of Acts, um, the book of Acts, Acts chapter 28, verse 31 talks about Paul says, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching the things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence and no one forbidding him. And it really tires me out to hear preachers who talk about, you know, preaching the cross or preaching Christ and they interpret it as if it means we're just preaching a very narrow band of the Bible, but most of the Bible we can ignore because it deals with social issues and other issues. Let me tell you something. Your social issues will fail if you are not interpreting them through the cross of Christ. If you are not causing them to submit to the laws of Christ, everything has to flow through Christ. All of life has to flow through Him. According to 2 Corinthians 1, 19-20, that phrase, preaching Christ, means preaching every promise of the Old Testament because every promise of the Old Testament was yes and amen in Jesus. Okay? Ephesians 3, 8 speaks of preaching Christ as including unsearchable riches. Colossians 1.8 indicates it includes all wisdom. Not just some wisdom, but all wisdom. Making every person mature in Christ. And so, yes, we believe in preaching Christ. That's why we preach every word of the Bible. Uh, we're not going to leave out anything. The whole council. Now, let's move on to verse 6. And the multitudes, with one accord, heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles. This is a spectacular football game. This is just an incredible football game that they're witnessing here. 
the multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. See, as Paul worded it, they did not just come with word only, but they came in word and in power. Both. Both were present. Now, the fact that these multitudes heeded the Word of God in my books is proof positive that the Spirit of God was poured out in their lives already. Now, Paul had not received the Spirit, so all he could do was oppose. We should not interpret it that these are good guys and Paul was a bad guy. Now, there is no difference between them other than the fact that God in this case has already been preparing the soil of the Word. You can preach your heart out to people unless God has prepared the soil by regenerating them, making them receptive to that Word. Uh, they're just going to have that Word go in one ear, out the other, maybe even oppose you. It is not going to accomplish anything. Now, on the other hand, our goal, our role is not to determine, oh, I think that person's regenerate, so I'm going to talk to him. We preach to everyone and it becomes pretty quickly obvious whom God has already prepared with the soil. Now, if Paul was completely left out or others who had been hardened initially were left out, um, then, you know, when is it that they would hear the word? You know, you could be preaching and preaching and preaching to these people and say, okay, I guess this guy's not elect. I think we would have interpreted that uh, if we had the right to do so with Paul. But God had not yet regenerated him. When God prepared his heart, all of a sudden, he heeded the Word of God. He was, he was prepared to be receptive. And that's the way we need to approach it as well. Don't give up on your loved ones. Don't give up on your neighbors. Now, this verse describes citywide revival. And to me, this is a very exciting uh, concept it was not just the city of Nineveh that was converted in one day. Uh, God converted this city of Samaria. And He has uh, brought citywide revival to many other cities since then. You can think of Philadelphia and Toronto and other places where after God's Spirit has moved in those cities, the city is not the same. It is turned upside down. There's radical changes that have been brought into the city. And so the passage is a paradigm for citywide revival. In fact, I think it's a great corrective for people who think that we've had revival uh, in a given city. What does it look like? Let me give you seven indicators of true citywide revival. Well, first, revival begins with the Word of God in verse 4. And any place where revival has broken out, there is going to be a hunger for the Word of God on the part uh, of the people. A second indication of revival is that there is a focus upon Christ. Not only that Christ is our sufficiency, but that without Him we cannot do anything. The savor of Christ infects everything that we do. And in verse 6, that's what he's preaching. That's what his focus is. It is upon Christ. Everything flows through Him. The third indication of revival was that there was genuine repentance. Now, Simon Magus didn't have genuine repentance. Verse 22 makes that quite clear. Uh, but most of the people here grieved over their sin, repented of their sin, turned and forsook their sins. The fourth indication uh, of revival is that they heeded the things being preached in verse 6. People cannot ignore the Word of God when the Spirit of God has been poured out in their lives because it's almost as if the Spirit rivets their attention upon the Word uh, that is being preached. They cannot ignore it. The fifth indicator of citywide revival was the miracles of verses 6 through 7. And you can look at any citywide revival in history. I don't know of any exceptions, 
but that there were miracles that the Lord produced. The sixth indicator of revival is liberty from bondage to sin and liberty from Satan. You can see that in verses six through. uh, Well, you can see that in verse seven. Uh, Paul says where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty, right? Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. And so this is one of the things you can test. Uh, a, a revival. I have uh, seen people describe certain what I call just emotional outbreaks uh, in a city and amongst a group of churches, and they said that's revival. And yet they're as carnal as ever. Uh, they they really do not have uh, this uh, liberty from sin and liberty from Satan. It's a fake revival. The seventh indicator was the joy of verse eight. But all in all, you know, many things have been called revival down through history that I don't think even remotely look like revival. Uh, Citywide true revival has substance like this one did. The city is changed. It's transformed. Now, let's quickly look at those verses. Verse 7. For unclean spirits crying with a loud voice came out of many who were possessed and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. Two types of healing that are mentioned here. The first is releasing people from demonic bondage and the other is releasing people from uh, bondage to disease. And I believe God continues to engage in both kinds of uh, miraculous work uh, to this day. I'm a strong believer in the ongoing presence of miracles. In fact, I've sometimes wished I had a, a camcorder when I have seen uh, miracles being done that are just amazing, like a withered hand just completely being healed right there before your eyes. And I wish I had a camcorder because I know when I go back and report, people are going to say, yeah, right. There was a miracle. Uh, They explain it away as something else. But God is a God of miracles. Now, here's some cautions. First of all, miracles by themselves do not convert. Otherwise, the Sanhedrin would have been converted, right? Because they saw, they witnessed with their very own eyes miracles. They do not convert. Luke 16.31 says, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. And so the order in this passage is heeding the Word of God, that's first, that's primary, and the miracles that followed. But when revival breaks out and God is transforming the hearts of people, many times He will accompany that revival with miracles in their lives, to bless them, to encourage them. And sometimes those miracles will make other people begin to consider the claims of Christ. This is happening in, in, in many countries, uh, even as we, uh, as we speak. So they don't convert, but they're obviously important, or the Bible would not spend so much time dealing with them. Now, what I find most exciting, though, about these verses is that verse 8 says, and there was great joy in that city. There was great joy in that city. That is what Christ has purchased for you. Great joy. And it's one of the signs of the presence of God's Spirit. See, the the goal of missions is to restore men, women, and children to their position where they glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And as John Piper is so fond of saying, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. Joyless Christianity does not glorify God. Let me repeat that. Joyless Christianity does not glorify God. 
Christ says, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. John 15, verse 11. His, his intention was not to bring joyless Christianity, but a Christianity that is so full of joy that the cup of joy can't fit any more joy in. That's what full joy is. In another occasion, Jesus said, I have come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. John 10 Verse 10, well, that purpose of Christ's coming was exemplified in the citywide revival. There was great life that was established. There was great joy. And I want to ask you this. Do you have that kind of life within you? Do you have that kind of joy of the Holy Spirit that sustains you even during the dark times? That's Christ's purpose. That's what He has purchased for you. Do you have joy in Christ or are you just playing the football game out of duty and out of drudgery? Well, if you lack joy, then point number three brings us back full circle to God's purpose for the huddle. See, just like us, uh, the disciples also lacked courage and they lacked joy after the crucifixion. But when Pentecost came, they were given both boldness and joy. And if you lack joy in the game of life, if you lack joy, what I encourage you to do is to go back in the huddle with Christ and then reemerged, energized and ready to scatter. <clears throat> this is a cycle that happens over and over in the book of Acts. Why did the apostles remain behind in verse 1? Well, it's because they want to start another team. And what they do is they establish that team in strength uh, so that they can uh, gain power. And then you can see in the next few chapters this. In chapter 12, verse 12, one last gathering for prayer and then a scattering for ministry. That chapter ends by saying the Word of God grew and multiplied. We see the same thing happening to the church in Samaria. Samaria is turned into a powerful practice season. A huddle in chapter 8, verses 5 through 8. A scattering for ministry in chapter 9, verse 31. And each of those teams that was established in the book of Acts constantly regathers for huddles and rescatters with power. And I would suggest that is the paradigm for our life. We need to constantly regroup for worship and for encouragement within the body and for devotions with our Lord day by day. Uh, and then we need to constantly be scattering to play ball Monday through Saturday out there in the world, bringing the Scriptures uh, where the Scriptures are not heard. And so I want to ask if you are good at both. And I'm not just talking about Sunday because I think our quiet time with the Lord, our, 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 our pressing deeper in, into the secret place of the Lord in our devotions day by day is as important to the day as the Sabbath is to the week. Okay? Constantly we need to be huddling, but constantly we also need to be scattering. Christ has redeemed us to play spiritual football, to gather so that we might scatter. May we all effectively do so for God's glory for our joy and for our satisfaction. Amen. Father God, we thank You for Your Word and that this passage shows Your faithfulness even during the times of persecution and trouble. We bless You for that, Father, that Your presence is with us, that You have promised You will never leave us nor forsake us. We thank You that You have promised to sustain us and to provide for us everything that we need for life and godliness during our times of huddle. And that You have commanded us to go out into the world and to not be fearful, to take Your Scriptures wherever we are, to sprinkle liberally this world with the salt of Your Word. And Father, we confess that the church of Jesus Christ has not been very good at doing this. 
Uh, we have lost our saltiness. And we fear and tremble at Your words in Matthew 5 that says that when we become saltless, we are good for nothing but to be cast out and trampled under foot of men. And Father, the church is being dominated by humanism. We are trampled under foot of men right now. And so we ask that You would forgive the church of Jesus Christ for refusing to play ball. Uh, please forgive us, Lord, for uh, failing to take You seriously at Your Word for failing to believe that there truly are judgments in history, for getting discouraged too quickly and failing to believe that our labors are not in vain in the Lord, for failing to heed the admonition in Galatians where it tells us to not grow discouraged and doing good, knowing that we will receive a harvest if we do not faint or grow weary. Father, make us to be a people who richly enters into these times of huddle and then just as courageously goes out and scatters for play. And Father, may You be glorified in all that we do. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.